Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle John's revelation of Jesus Christ. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. like you to do this morning. This will be more impactful to you if you play along. I want you to imagine something in your head. I'm going to say one word to you, and when I say it, I want you to imagine it, and then I want you to take an image of it so that you can remember it. The word this morning is gospel. When you think of the gospel, what do you think of? If you're going to tell the gospel to somebody, what are you going to tell them? What words are you going to use? 
And are those words going to include the hour of his judgment has come? Is that part of what you consider the gospel? You see, what has happened in the modern American church is that we have taken the word gospel and we have made it a technical term so that whenever we say the gospel, we automatically think death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. When I said gospel, how many of you thought death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Pretty much everybody, because that is how we narrowly define the biblical gospel. But the word gospel, the English word, comes to us from the old English. It's the good spiel, the good speech. It's just been contracted into the word gospel. The Greek word is euangelion. And that word has a wide berth of meaning. In fact, what euangelion means is good news or good speech. And it can be good speech about Anything, anything that is positive, anything that is good, can be considered euangelion. And so when the Bible was written, the word euangelion was used frequently to describe any set of words, any speech that were ultimately good. And then that moved into the Old English and into our modern day as the word gospel. And we have taken that broad definition and we have narrowed it way down. So when you hear someone say something like, the hour of the judgment of God has come, we don't think, oh, that's the gospel. And yet, in what we're going to read this morning, starting in Revelation chapter 14, Starting at verse 6, there's another angel flying in the mid-heaven, and he's going to proclaim something that is actually referred to as the eternal gospel. And yet that eternal gospel is going to say nothing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Instead, it's going to serve as a warning to everybody who's still on the planet Now, by the time we see this angel flying in the mid-heavens, by the time we hear him proclaiming the everlasting gospel, the only people who are left on the planet are people who haven't been killed, so they've taken the mark. They've already been identified for us by John as those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life since before the foundation of the world. And then there are the Jewish community that are hiding out in Ammon and Moab and Edom, that God is protecting and cutting the time short in order to preserve those people. And so my question as we read through this is, this declaration that is called the everlasting gospel, which is actually quite condemnatory, why is this happening at this point? And why is it called the everlasting gospel, considering that it starts with fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come? In what way is that good news to the people on the planet who are about to fall under the judgment of God? Very soon, we're going to start reading about the four bowls of God's judgment that are being poured out on the earth. Things are getting really bad. We're at the point in Revelation where we're really talking about the end time, day of the Lord, judgment of God. In what way is this considered good news? Well, the answer is, from the heavenly perspective, this is really, really good news. Because what it means is God is finally doing the thing that he has said for all this time. Ever since he created human beings, he has always talked about this time of judgment that was coming. And when the time of judgment occurs, the next thing that happens is the kingdom to come. So really, the knowledge that God is now entering into the judgment that is going to lead to the kingdom is extremely good news to everybody who is on God's side in this scenario. But to the people on planet Earth, this is not good news. This is a final warning to them. 
In fact, what we're going to read is that it is told to everybody, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people are going to hear what this angel has to say. And yet, what you don't see here is conversion. What you do see is a final warning making everybody who's left on the planet guilty. Nobody's going to be able to say, I didn't know. Would have been different if you told me. Instead, everybody who is judged is going to be rightly judged because not only did they spend their lives as enemies of God, but then they also heard the voice of the angel declaring to them that God was going to judge them for their enemy status, for the fact that they had that mark in their right hand and their forehead, for the fact that they had lived their whole lives chasing after the flesh and being enemies of God. And before God judges them in a move of just unbelievably sovereign justice, he declares one last time to them, The reason I say one last time is we've already seen the 144,000 who were witnessing to the Jews. And the next time we see them, they're on Mount Zion with Jesus going wherever he goes. We've read about the two witnesses. The two witnesses were killed, laid in the street for three days, and then they got up and then they were taken up into heaven. There's nobody else on the planet who is declaring the gospel of grace instead what we're seeing now is the gospel of the declaration of the judgment of God and nobody is going to be able to say they didn't know you got it it. so we're in chapter 14 of the book of Revelation verse 6 and I saw another angel flying in mid heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. So this is called an eternal good news, and it truly is an eternal good news. From the heavenly perspective, it is indeed heavenly good news. And he is, after all, a citizen of heaven. Therefore, this is good news from God's perspective that he is preaching, that he is declaring to the earth, and he's going to declare it to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God. Let's talk about that first two words for a moment. Or let's talk about those first two words for a moment. I was, after all, an English major. You'd think I would be able to get that right. Fear God. Okay, now, given who these people are who were left on the planet... Can they fear God? No, you're shaking your heads. Yeah. No, they can't do it. But are they responsible to do it? Yes, absolutely. When God judges them, he rightly judges them. They've been told by an angelic voice. They've been told their whole lives the very fact that God has given them day and night and food and air to breathe. The fact that the universe exists shouts out the reality of God. They have spent their whole lives denying the existence of God, and now an angel from heaven is saying to them, fear God. And it is an absolute command. This is the way, by the way, that Yahweh, the God of the Bible, works. He makes demands on people that he knows they can't do. You know, when Paul was on Mars Hill talking to the folks at the Areopagus, and he saw the altar to an unknown God. He started declaring to them the God they didn't know, and he started preaching the God of the Bible. And he did something very similar to this. He didn't say death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Instead, what he said is judgment's coming. And as a result of the fact that judgment's coming, God demands that all men everywhere repent. That's what Paul says. Okay, so can all men everywhere repent? No. But are they required to? Yes. Yeah, the standard doesn't change. That's the important thing to know about God. God's standard does not change. 
He does not bend or reshape his standards to meet our inability. Instead, he holds that very high standard and requires that everybody repent, have faith, come to him in love. And because we can't do it, we who are in Christ have a substitute and have the Holy Spirit of God making intercession for us because we, just like all other humans, are incapable of doing the things God demands of us. Here, I'll put it this way. Was the law a requirement or a suggestion? Requirement. It was a requirement. Was Israel required to keep all 613 rules? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Could they? No. No. So what did God do? Did he bend his standard? Did he lessen the law because he knew they were incapable? No, he kept the standard intact, gave a sacrifice, his own son, who as a substitute would fill in the gap between our incapability and God's perfect standard. But to everybody who is left on the planet at this moment, as the angel is declaring this, they are incapable of fearing God. And yet the requirement stands. God is going to be completely just in the way he executes his justice against them because they've been told, fear God and give him glory. Not just reverence God, but get down on your face in front of him. This is being said to a people group who have already bowed the knee to the idol of the Antichrist. The abomination that makes desolation is already standing in the temple. The false prophet has already given it breath and voice. People are already taking the mark and they are already worshiping the beast through whom they are worshiping Satan himself. And yet the standard is fear God, give him glory. The standard doesn't change. Fear God. And give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and earth. And the sea. And the springs of water. Okay, so the evidence that God exists is the fact that the creation exists. The fact that heaven and earth exist, the fact that the sea and the springs of water and all life exists, that is evidence for God. And according to the angel here, that is sufficient evidence to cause you to fear, reverence, and worship God. That makes the people left here on the planet very, very guilty because they are not doing and are not capable of doing the very requirement that's being laid out by the angel, flying in the mid-heaven, speaking to every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water, and that is what constitutes an everlasting good news. And as I said, that's only good news from the heaven perspective. It's not good news for anybody left on the planet because all they're discovering is, oh, that's another requirement I can't do. But God is now exercising his absolute authority in judgment. And the fact that that judgment is coming means that the kingdom is right behind it means that Christ himself is going to rule from Jerusalem, that all the nations of all the Gentiles are going to flow to Jerusalem. Everything that the prophets in the Old Testament have predicted about the kingdom to come is finally going to come to fruition. And I think it's exceptionally good news. I see it as God finally exercising his own word. It's a demonstration. It's proof that when God says things, he means it. And he's actually going to do it. And heaven celebrates and heaven worships and heaven bursts into praise when God does what God says he's going to do. So it's really, really good news. It's just not good news to the people who were left on the planet. 
and yet it still qualifies as you Galizzo. It's still really good news. Now, I have so far in this study of the book of Revelation, I have purposefully avoided going to Matthew 24 so far as we've looked through this book. There are a lot of parallels going on between the book of Revelation and Matthew 24, but I purposefully held on to it until this point because this moment in time, this angel flying in the midheaven declaring this everlasting gospel is something that Jesus actually predicted. And he predicted it in the same order as we find it here in the book of Revelation. So it's a really obvious demonstration of the prophecies of Jesus coming true. And Jesus himself was just saying the same thing that all the prophets have been saying all along. So we're going to spend pretty much the balance of this morning over in Matthew 24 using this angel in midheaven as an introduction to Matthew 24. So turn over to Matthew 24. Keep a bookmark there in Revelation 14. We may get back to it. We're going to start reading at verse 1. I'm most interested within this context in verse 14. But we can't just launch into verse 14 without understanding the context of Matthew 24. In Matthew 23, Jesus has been castigating the leaders in Jerusalem, the Pharisees. He's been calling them hypocrites. He's been calling them a den of vipers. He's been calling them whitewashed sepulchers. This is Jesus teaching us how to make friends and influence people. Jesus is just walking around, slapping down the religious leaders and saying to them things like, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you build the tombs of the prophets and you adorn the the monuments of the righteous. And you say that if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Jesus is just slicing and dicing here, taking the leadership apart. Fill up. The guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the judgment of hell? So then Jesus, starting at verse 34, describes the entirety of the Old Testament to them and says, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. And some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, and you will persecute from city to city, that upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come to pass on this people group, on this Ganea, on this generation. Jesus is holding them guilty, guilty, guilty. Starting at verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. That, by the way, is the accurate history of the Old Testament. God kept sending them prophets and scribes and teachers, and they kept killing them. And then they're going to kill Jesus, the final of the prophets that God sends to them. And so naturally, he could say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under his wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Keep your finger there. Turn back to the Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 118. We're just going to keep going backwards till we're in Genesis again. Go back to Psalm 118. And we're going to start reading at verse 22. This is David talking about the stone who the builders rejected. 
That's language that's picked up in the New Testament. That's the language that is obviously referring to Christ himself. He is the chief cornerstone, the one that the builders there in Jerusalem have rejected. And so David puts it this way. Psalm 118.22, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is Yahweh's doing. It's not that man lifted up Jesus, figured out who he was, or made him the chief cornerstone. Human beings rejected him. As John says, he came to his own and his own received him not. People hated him and ultimately crucified him. And yet God himself has made him the chief cornerstone on which everything else is built. This is Yahweh's doing, and it's marvelous. It's wonderful. It's incredible in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. By the way, you probably all know the song, right? This is the day that the Lord has made. And usually people sing that because they think like, this is a Tuesday the Lord has made. Whatever day they're in, this is the day that the Lord. If you look at it in context, you can tell that's not what David was saying. David was saying there's a day coming when God himself is going to make Christ the chief cornerstone. That is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And that day is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and let us be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes In the name of the Lord, we have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So David, speaking prophetically, says the day is coming when God is going to set up Christ as the chief cornerstone. That's going to be an incredible, wonderful, marvelous day, a day unlike any other so that this is the day that the Lord has made, that Yahweh has established. And then there's going to be rejoicing and gladness in it. There's going to be forgiveness in it. There's going to be prosperity in it. And then blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. An obvious reference to the same one who is the stone that the builders rejected. Knowing that David said that, now you can go back to Matthew 24. Knowing that David has said that, Jesus can then say to the Jewish leaders who he has been denouncing and castigating he can say to them I say to you from now on you shall not see me until you say what David said you're gonna say and what you're gonna say is blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord instead of seeking to kill me instead of hating me instead of being against me You're going to declare that this is the day that the Lord has made when he has established Christ himself as the chief cornerstone on which all the rest of Jerusalem is going to be built. And when you recognize that about me, that's when you'll see me again. So Jesus is just speaking prophetically as the fulfillment of something that David had already put in place. And then, of course, you know Zechariah 12.10. We just looked at it last week. And in fact, Leon read it for us last week. And Zechariah 12.10 is all about Jesus returning and Israel getting from God the spirit of supplication, the spirit of repentance, and they as a nation are going to look on him whom they have pierced. They're going to see themselves as personally responsible for piercing him the same way Jesus has said, you're the ones who have always killed the prophets. Everybody who's been sent to you, you've killed them, you've rejected them. They're going to look at Christ, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate son of God. They're going to recognize the one that they are responsible for piercing. And it says they're going to weep over him like a mother weeps over her only child. So that fits perfectly with the fact that he's going to return and they're going to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, that's all context for Matthew 24. And Jesus came out from the temple and he was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Obviously, they were saying, look at this. I mean, it really was a magnificent thing. If you even go online and look at the ruins of the temple, just to get some sense of how large it was, 
It was a really incredible structure. And so they're pointing out the temple buildings to him, and he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which is not torn down. Okay, he's speaking prophetically, and that happened. 70 AD, the temple was in fact destroyed, and not one stone was left standing on another. Why? Because Jesus knows what he's talking about. So, as a consequence, since he said that, and since it was truly a, an unbelievable thing he's saying, I mean, I'm trying to stress how large and how magnificent and how well-built this temple was, and yet, Jesus says, the day is coming when none of this is going to stand. So verse 3, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now we have to discuss verse 3 for a moment because... I see three questions there. I see those three questions as being, when are these things going to be? The destruction of the temple. What's going to be the sign of your coming? And what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? As you read through the Gospels, you see Jesus frequently talking about this age and the age to come. So there's clearly an end to this age. When he says things like, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Or when he's talking about marriage and given in marriage. And he talks about this age and the age to come. And so that can be the only reference point that they are referring to when they ask, what's the end of the age? How are we going to know the end of the age? So I see that as one question. And then also, we know you're coming. You just got done saying to the Pharisees that they're not going to see you again until they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That means that at some point, you're going to set up your kingdom, that they are going to recognize you as the one that God has sent, but they don't right now. And so that has to be completed at some point. When are you going to do that? When are you going to come and establish the kingdom? And oh yeah, when is it going to be that this temple is going to fall down? Now I will admit that there are eschatologies and theologies that see those three phrases as one question. In other words, tell us when will the temple fall, which we see as being the sign of your coming, which we also see as the end of the age. And then usually people who have that eschatology will say to you that the end of the age that they're speaking of is the end of the Jewish age, the end of the law, the end of the temple services. So it's the end of that age, which is why I took the time to point out that their only point of reference where this age and the age to come, their only point of reference is what Jesus has said, not the end of the Jewish age. Jesus never spoke about the end of the Jewish age, but he did constantly speak about the end of this present evil age and the age to come. And so I conclude that that can be the only thing that they're talking about. So tell us these three things. When will these things be, number one? What will be the sign of your coming, number two? And what will be the end of the age? Jesus answers all three questions. So instead of Jesus immediately saying, okay, here's the time, the time, and the time. I'm going to give you the three calendar dates. I'm going to tell you what this all looks like. Instead, the first thing he says to them is, see to it that no one misleads you. Why did he think that was primary? Of all the important things he could have said to them at that moment, why did he start after these questions, after tell us when these things will be and what's the sign of your coming and what's the end of the age, he starts with, don't be deceived. Why would he start there? Because clearly there's going to be people trying to deceive you. 
And then he describes what that deception is going to look like. For many, says verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Okay, well, that happened in the first century. That happened in the second century. It happened in the third century. Are you getting the drift here? It happened in the fourth century. It's happening right now in the 21st century. There are people on the planet right now who claim to be the Christ, claim to be the Messiah. And sure enough, many people follow them, which astounds me. I'm not surprised when I get on the internet and I see some nutcase somewhere claiming to be the Messiah. When I see that, I think, well, yeah, of course, depraved human being, of course you're going to go out there and claim you're the Messiah. That doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is the people who follow him. You know, when I used to live in California, when Tom and I were out there, I used to say that there were so many religious ideas out there that you could find a religious nut on every street corner. True. And it's true. But what's more astounding is every one of those soapbox preaching nuts has three or four other nuts listening to him. That makes no sense to me. So Jesus warns the same thing. Be careful because people are going to come. I think the reason he starts there is in a moment he's going to say, when it's me, everybody's going to know it. I mean, like if Micah came in here one day and said, I'm the Messiah. Are we going to believe him? No, we're going to lock him in a padded room and look at him through a little hole in the door. Because clearly Mike has gone around the corner and he's not coming back anytime soon. So we ought to be able to tell that. We know looking at Mike, okay, not the Messiah. Well, that's true of any other human being. If there's any other human being on the planet claiming to be mediator between you and God, he's not. You don't need him. I don't care if he wears a purple dress and calls himself Pope. You don't need him. If there's any pastor, any preacher, any religious figure, any guru, if there's any spiritual person on the planet who claims to be the go-between between you and the almighty God, you don't need him. Because there is one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. And that man has told us he's going to come back. And when he comes back, there's not going to be anybody questioning it. Like, gee, do you think maybe that's uh, Jesus? So see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but the end is not yet. Oh, what he's really doing here then is answering the question, what's the sign of the end of the age? Because he's saying it's not the end yet. You're going to see it go bad. It's going to go really bad. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of war when there aren't active wars, kind of like what's happening right now on planet Earth. But that's happened for the last 2,000 years. Verse 7 says, for nation will rise against nation. That's the Greek word ethnos, from which we get ethnicity. Ethnic group against ethnic group. Gee, does that sound familiar? Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. But... All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, I think it's a fair reading of that statement to recognize that Jesus chose birth pangs not only because it corresponds with what Jeremiah has told us, what Isaiah has told us, what we've read in the Gospels, what we've read in Revelation even, which wasn't written by the time Jesus was saying this, but one of the most common figures for this time of tribulation, such as never was or ever would be again, is men walking around as if they're pregnant women in labor, holding their sides, bent over in pain. So this language of childbirth and tribulation 
is combined all the way through the Bible. Jesus just does it again and says that these are the beginning of labor pains. Um, You mothers in the room, when you hit the beginning of the labor pains, Jennifer, when you hit the beginning of the labor pains, is it pretty much done? Are you finished at that point? No. When you hit the beginning of the labor pains, you know what's coming, right? Yeah, you, you know there's big pain coming. Well, Jesus knows that too. I mean, if I know it and if Jennifer knows it, I assume that God knows that. And so he's saying these things that are going to happen on the planet that you're going to see where the world is rocking and reeling and getting worse and worse, that's not the end yet. Because the end, the real end, the eschatological end, is when God starts pouring out his wrath. Then you know it's really wrapping up. This world might have a lot of trouble, a lot of difficulty in it. In the world, you'll have tribulation. But I've overcome the world, says Jesus. And so this world is going to be full of trials and difficulties, even to the point of wars and rumors of war and nation against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there are going to be famines, there's going to be floods, there's going to be earthquakes. But all those things are just the beginning of the birth pangs that are going to keep ramping up and keep ramping up and getting worse and worse and getting until they culminate in the wrath of God being poured out on the planet which is exactly where we are in the book of Revelation right now. You see the correlation? All these things are merely the birth pangs or the beginning of the birth pangs. And then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. By the way, notice that it is Jesus who told us about a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again. He's the one who used the phrase Thalipsis Megas, tribulation the great, And he doesn't refer to tribulation to great here. I think he's just talking about this is the tribulation of the world. This is the difficulty of living on this planet. They will deliver you up into all kinds of trouble. They're going to deliver you to tribulation. And what's that going to look like? They're going to kill you. And you're going to be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away. The Greek word there is skandalizo, I do believe. It's the word from which we get scandal. There are going to be people who are scandalized by the idea of Christianity and leave. They're going to fall away and they will deliver up one another and they will hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Can we say that right now on the planet there happen to be a lot of false prophets? Are we pretty good with that? I mean, it's just a fact. There's plenty of people claiming to be Christ, and there's plenty of false prophets leading people in all kinds of different ways. These false prophets are going to arise and mislead many. And because of anomia, because of that's law with the alpha negative in front of it, because of the lawlessness increasing in the world most people's love will grow cold I think it's very interesting that Jesus at that point contrasted lawlessness with love because one of the key elements of genuine Christianity is Christian love Christian charity sacrificial love for one another and when people start falling away from genuine Christianity you'll notice here that they're going to deliver up each other and hate each other which is the opposite of loving each other And the reason that's going to happen is because of the lawlessness that is increasing in the world. By the way, at this moment in time, I know I keep making reference to today, but at this moment in time, are we comfortable saying that lawlessness runs rampant on the planet? Absolutely. Especially if the law we're talking about is not the law of Smyrna, Tennessee. If we're talking about the law of God, then yes, the lawlessness runs rampant. And more ironically, as the laws of God are being broken continually in our nation and on the planet, men are codifying those very actions and claiming to put them into law. Here, I'll give you a quick example. Is it legal 
to get an abortion? Yep. Yeah, according to human beings, completely legal thing to do. Except God considers it a completely lawless thing to do. As soon as he got to the whole thou shall not kill part, that became a closed subject. And yet human beings in their depravity, in their lawlessness, in their hatred, have codified the very things that God said don't do. And they call it law keeping. Oh, we're so upside down. We're so stupid. It's astounding. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. He's still answering the question, what's going to be the sign of the end of the age? He's still answering the end question. And in the midst of answering the end question, what's the end going to look like? How are we going to know the end? What are we going to see? What's the sign of the end? Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness against all the nations. Then the end will come. That's exactly what we just read in the book of Revelation. That there was going to be an angel flying in the mid-heavens who was going to declare the everlasting gospel to the people who are still here on planet Earth, and that's building up to the final judgment of God. That's even part of the message. And so Jesus prophesied right here what John then saw and wrote down and prophesied. In other words, we now have more than adequate witness because we've got Jesus and John both saying that this event is going to take place. Is it pretty secure then? That it's going to happen? Yes. But is it going to save anybody? No. So then in what way is it? The gospel. Well, notice here that it's not called the everlasting gospel. It's called the gospel of the kingdom. Because once the end happens, what's the next thing that happens after the judgment of God? The kingdom. You should have said it louder, Joni. I could see you mouthing it, but <laughs> yeah, the kingdom is the next thing that takes place. So, of course, the angel would be declaring the everlasting gospel, which Jesus calls the gospel of the kingdom, which entails fear God and give him glory because his judgment is coming. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Those who are where? In Judea. In Judea. Does that have anything to do with the church? No. No. Number one, the church didn't exist at this moment. Secondly, he's talking and just told us, he's talking to Jerusalem. He's talking to Jews. He's talking to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. He's talking to his own followers. And now he declares to them, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the temple, just like Daniel said to you, then you who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he can say that in shorthand because they already know Daniel 11.41, which already tells them that the Antichrist is not going to get to Edom and Abin and Moab. And so his reference to Daniel the prophet also gives them the clue about where to run to. Let him who is on the housetop not go down and get the things that are in the house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to go get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. But pray that your flight not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Okay, now we really know it's being applied to the Jewish community. Because, Elizabeth, are you really worried about the Sabbath at this point? 
No, we're already told in the book of Hebrews that Christ doing the work for us is the finishing, the completion of the Sabbath. Therefore, there's an eternal rest for us. There is a Sabbathing for us because we rest in Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus here said, pray that your flight not be on the Sabbath. So this is just one more internal evidence that he's talking specifically to the Jews who were in Jerusalem, the very ones who are going to see the temple, who are going to see the abomination of desolation in the temple. Verse 21, because then there will be, here's the contrast. Earlier, verse 9, he said they're going to deliver you into tribulation. Now, he says, because then, after the uh, abomination of desolation is set up, then there will be a philipsis megas, a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall be. So he earlier talked about the birth pangs, said don't be afraid, that's just the beginning, it's not the end yet. Now he's describing what the end's going to look like. Abomination of desolation, and then a time of trouble such as never was or ever will be again. Verse 22, and unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Is it necessary at this point to point out that there is no church, when Jesus says elect, he's talking about Israel. Because in the Old Testament, repeatedly, they are referred to as the elect of God. He's talking to Jews, so when they hear the word elect, what do they think? Never mind what 21st century Gentiles think. What would his listeners have thought when they heard the word elect? They would have thought Israel. They would have thought the Jews. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, for the ones that God has chosen, for his people, those days will be cut short. He's going to preserve them. Verse 23, then if anyone says to you, behold, here is Christ, or there he is, don't believe them. Okay, he's back to subject one. This is how he began this conversation. He began by saying, if, if someone claims to be the Christ, don't believe them. If a false prophet tries to persuade you, don't believe them. Now he's going to describe what it's going to be like when he himself comes back. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. I like the little phrase, if possible. The elect, the ones that God is preserving, cannot be fooled by this. But they're going to do these great wonders, which are the very things that we've read about so far in the book of Revelation, that the false prophet is going to cause the image of the beast to breathe and to speak and cause everybody to worship it, take a mark in their right hand and their forehead. And so, yes, of course, Jesus could say predictively, that there's going to be a false Christ, there's going to be false prophets, and they will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the very elect. And then this wonderful phrase from Jesus, Behold, I told you in advance. Okay, that means everybody's responsible. That means nobody can say we didn't know. I mean, yeah, sure, I bowed down to the image. Yeah, sure, I took the mark in my right hand and my forehead, but I didn't know any better. Jesus says, I've already told you. I've already warned you. So then anybody who does worship, anybody who does take the mark of ownership from the beast is responsible for what they've done because, behold, I told you in advance. If, therefore... They say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness. Don't go forth. Don't go follow them. They're nuts. Let them go out in the wilderness by themselves. You don't have to go. Look, if little Johnny jumped off the cliff, do you have to jump off the cliff? Anyway. I'm sorry. I became my mom there. I was channeling, <laughs> channeling my mother there for just a moment. If, therefore, they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go. Or behold, he's in the inner room. So wilderness, he's out in the open. Inner room, he's hiding. Whether he's out in the open or whether he's hiding, don't believe them when they say that. Now, how can he say that so confidently? 
because verse 27, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. When lightning streaks across the sky, everybody under it sees it. And so Jesus, agreeing with Joel, agreeing with what we're going to read in Revelation, there's going to be all of these cosmic events that are going to happen in the heavens. The sun and moon are going to go dark. Sun and moon like sackcloth. The stars aren't going to give their light. And against the backdrop of that sudden darkness in the heavens, which is going to be scary enough on its own, but against that backdrop, the sign of the Son of Man appears in the heavens. And Jesus says, it's going to be like the way that lightning streaks across the sky and everybody sees it. When I come back, I'm not going to be hiding in a room. When I come back, I'm not out in the wilderness where you've got to go find me. When I come back, everybody's going to see me. Everybody's going to know that I'm returning. And what we read is, men on the earth, when they see that, are going to run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth and say, hide us, because he's coming back wrathful. And hide us from the wrath of him that sits on the throne. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. When he comes back, he's coming back in judgment, exactly like the angel says, flying in the mid-heavens, that the time of God's judgment is finally at hand. Verse 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. That's exactly what Leon read for us last week out of Zechariah, that when Christ returns, God is going to put that spirit of supplication and repentance on Israel. They're going to look on him whom they have pierced. That is exactly what Jesus is describing here. All the tribes of the earth are going to mourn over him. Some are going to be judged. Some are going to be changed. Some are going to repent. Some are going to come to him. They're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. And then verse 31, he will send forth an angel with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, Israel, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. We don't have time to go into this in any depth here, but if you've been around GCA for any length of time, I have shown you the multiple promises in the Old Testament by God where he says, the same way that I scattered you among the Gentiles, I'm going to regather you and plant you in your land. That's what Jesus is referring to here. That after all this tribulation and after his return, what happens? The kingdom. And how is the kingdom established? He's going to send forth his angel with a great trumpet and gather together his elect from the four winds, the very place he scattered them to. And he's going to go get them from one end of the sky to the other end of the sky. No matter where they are on planet Earth, they're going to be found and they're going to be brought back to establish the kingdom that has been promised all the way through the Old Testament. I hope that was helpful and filled in some of the blanks. It's part of the reason that John could speak in this sort of shorthand in the book of Revelation is he knows Jesus has already said all this. Jesus has already taught all this, and Jesus put that fine exclamation point on it when he said, look, I already told you. And so for John to say all that again would be redundant. Once Jesus has said it, it's good. So all John is doing is uh, agreeing with Jesus that these things have to happen in this same order. The same way Jesus laid it out is the same way that John's laying it out. And therefore, we read in Revelation that there's an angel in mid-heaven crying out the everlasting gospel to the inhabitants of the earth. And that everlasting gospel is the declaration that you need to fear and worship God because the hour of his judgment has come. And once that happens, the next thing to occur 
is the kingdom, and that makes it really good news. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.